Okay, before we get started, I have a bunch of announcements that I'd like to make. First, today is the launch of our annual Cyber Sale. So last year, we had a Cyber Monday sale, which was just on Cyber Monday. Um, and this year, uh, we're extending it a little bit longer, partly just so we don't strain our website too much um, by having too many people on it at once. So the Cyber Sale launched today, uh, Wednesday, November 25th, and will run through Monday, November 30th. During the sale, we have 40% off all audio and video recordings uh, through our website store. So if you're interested in any of that, please um, go there. Today, we also launch our annual holiday giving drive. We are doing our best to adjust to the realities of COVID-19 by moving um, a significant portion of what we can do online. But the financial strain is real, and we need your help to make it through this difficult time. We also believe that others, you know, who still need to continue their own um, individuation process need resources to be accessible and they need to be affordable um, because, you know, we're all feeling the precarity of the moment. You can help support uh, the C.G. Young Institute of Chicago by making a donation. There's a link to make donations in the show notes of this episode. Um, and you can also support us by making a purchase in our online store um, during the sale or afterward. Another thing that I wanted to mention is that um, we occasionally get comments but uh, about podcast episodes and blog posts, but I just wanted to let you know that we actually do read those and respond. So if you have a question um, for you know the speaker of one of our episodes or for the uh, Chicago Society of Jungian Analysts, um, feel free to go to the episode page, uh, the post page, and leave your comment, and, and we'll read it and see if we can get someone to respond. Welcome to the Jungian Anthology Podcast, analytical psychology seminars from the archives of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. The power of language and its effect upon gender representation. Jungian analyst Joyce Boguski considers the work of contemporary women in the fields of linguistics, philosophy, anthropology, psychoanalysis, and feminine psychology to explore the critical issues and controversies concerning language and its impact on gender representation. Special attention is given to current feminist critiques of language, mechanisms of oppression and self-censorship, women's access to language, and ideological and cultural determinants of expression. It was recorded on October 29, 1993. Joyce Bukowski is a Jungian analyst who has been in private practice in Evanston and Chicago, a professor in the Counseling Psychology Department at Northwestern University, a personal trainer, and a yoga teacher. The question of language and its political implications has exercised writers, linguists, philosophers, and social theorists, to name a few, throughout the intellectual history of Western civilization. It is noticeable, too, that the subject has inspired extreme pessimism from ancient Greece to Orwell's 1984. <clears throat> so speech and writing, language, gender, has been credited with a malign power to regulate human social relations in ways we are not aware of and to disguise important truths in a cloud of misleading rhetoric. Today's speakers and writers inherit the idea that language is a weapon used by the powerful to oppress and silence their subordinates. Nor is this belief unjustified. But why should language and knowledge about language be a resource for the powerful alone? Why shouldn't this weapon be appropriated by the other side? These are the questions asked. Feminists had constantly asked these questions. 
addressing it in various ways. For instance, at the Seneca Falls Convention of 1848, a landmark event in America of feminism, delegates adopted a resolution protesting the contemporary restrictions on women's rights and raised the question of gender masculine pronouns more than a hundred years ago. In the early part of the century, modernist woman writers like Virginia Woolf and Dorothy Richardson debated the question of the woman's sentence, searching for a literary language that would fit the feminine experience they sought to express. In the present wave of feminist activity, now more than 20 years old, women have returned to these same questions even more insistently, as we shall see. Clearly, feminists do not consider language a side issue or a luxury, but an essential part of the struggle for liberation. So if we define feminism, first it's necessary, I think, to do so. Uh, this term has, does not have any one agreed upon meaning that could be formulated at a, a set of beliefs. There are many feminisms, but all are informed by certain shared concerns. At a political level, Feminism is a movement for the full humanity of women. Notice, I do not say women's rights or even equality. Equality presupposes a standard to which one is equal. In this case, the implied standard is men. Feminists are ultimately in pursuit of a more radical change, the creation of a world in which one gender does not set the standard of human value. Even the most moderate liberal feminist who has as her main goal the free entry of women to traditionally male domains will sometimes express doubt as to whether our current values and yardsticks of success are really ideal for anyone, male or female. Of course, women must, as a precondition to any wholesale change in values, be liberated from their present subordinate position with its multiple restrictions, exclusions, and oppressions, such as relative poverty, economic dependence, sexual exploitation, and vulnerability to violence, poor health, overwork, lack of civil and legal rights, the list goes on and on. But the transformation that will result from this liberation is envisioned as a profound one, affecting the whole of humanity. As an intellectual approach, feminism seeks to understand how current relations between women and men are constructed. And we take it they are constructed rather than natural. And in the light of this understanding, how they can be changed. Here, feminists have paid attention to the differences between women and men. If they are not natural but constructed, how are they constructed? If they tend to subordinate women to men, how and why does this happen? Feminist theory has advanced various accounts and examined the influence of a number of factors. An example is the sexual division of labor, present to some degree in all known societies in which some tasks are women's and others are men's, still exists today. <clears throat> men's work is economically and socially valued. This still exists today. The societies which most closely approach sexual equality seem to be those in which women control their own production and men need the things they produce. Some feminists have looked particularly at women's obligation to do domestic work and childcare, suggesting that mothering, apart from its role in restricting women economically, may have consequences for the psychology of women and their children reproducing the cycle whereby woman, mother, and men do not. Other feminists have considered the role of sexuality, that is, socially mediated sexual practice, in restricting and oppressing women. Sexual violence against women is widely practiced and frequently condoned. At the same time, a double standard denies women full expression as active sexual beings themselves. And there is also a good deal of feminist work emphasizing the importance of cultural represent representations of gender, men and women as they appear, or in the case of women, don't appear, in stories, pictures, textbooks, scholarly articles, and so on. 
informing the identities of real women and men, their notions of masculinity and femininity, their expectations of what is possible and their ideas of what is normal. The question of language and its workings can enter into this feminist project of description and explanation in a number of ways. I want now to point out several reasons for a feminist concern and why they concern themselves with language. And here we go to feminism, language, and linguistic theory. One of the ways a uh, concern with language entered contemporary feminism was through the preoccupation of the early second wave in the late 60s and early 70s with images of women, that is, representations. Some of the most striking feminist actions and texts of the period, actions like the famous protest against beauty contests and texts like Kate Millett's Sexual Politics, took as their point of departure a strong objection to the ways in which women were portrayed in cultural products. Right up to the present, this strain in feminism has remained strong. Literature, children's reading books, advertising, and the media generally receive critical attention from feminists. Language, too, is a medium of representation, and not surprisingly, the sexism of many conventional usages was challenged by feminists early on. Though I shall stick to talking about the English language here, the challenge to sexist language could <clears throat> and still can be found among speakers of many languages, including French, German, Dutch, Italian, Japanese, to name a few. Usages were thought to be in need of reform, and if they were blatantly offensive, blonde in fatal car crash, bitches wear furs, or else androcentric, implying that the norm of humanity is male, man, mankind, man in the streets, and so on. <clears throat> Reform usually meant avoiding offensive expressions and recasting androcentric ones, so they became neutral. Thus, mankind becomes humanity, and so on. This non-sexist language was endorsed by a major publisher, McGraw-Hill, as early as 1973, and has continued to make inroads into many people's speech and writing. This was a concern about language, but it implicitly depended on a theory of how language works, a linguistic theory. Early feminist anal analyze or analysis of language generally rested, to some extent, they still do, on the notion of conditioning. If you are exposed repeatedly to stereotypes and distortions, you'll come to believe them and take them for granted. In the case of language, it seems important in retrospect that feminists were able to draw on a strong tradition of thought, making similar arguments, though for different purposes. The idea that language is abused by the powerful to conceal or distort the truth appears throughout the Western intellectual tradition. Both feminists and anti-feminist thinkers have made use of this tradition. Feminists also became interested in reviving theories from pre-war anthropology theories which suggest that language strongly affects and maybe even determines one's world view. The claim of, they call this linguistic determinism. One ling linguistic determinist feminist writer called Dale Spender, by the end of the 1970s, uh, wrote about the analysis of sexist language from, uh, and showing many of the problematic and offensive expressions in all language, to the extent that she had created uh, a new language. Her book is a very interesting one to read about some of these uh, criticisms, and uh, quite extreme and sometimes very poetic. Now I'll move on to the personal, and is political language and feminist practice, consciousness raising. Although it's slightly artificial to separate things out as I'm doing here, since feminist concerns are always overlapping parts of a varied whole, it can be argued that feminists of the 60s and 70s had other reasons to be concerned with the workings of language, apart from the sexist representations that surrounded them. Language was central to feminist practice, and the problems this raised led many feminists to look for some kind of linguistic theory. One of the most fundamental and most innovative feminist political activities at the time, consciousness raising, CR, was essentially a linguistic practice in which women talked to one another about their experiences. 
The idea behind consciousness raising is that when women come together to articulate personal experience, they will discover common threads and come to perceive what they had thought of as a personal problems and inadequacies to be shared conditions determined by social structures. This is the meaning of the famous feminist slogan, the personal is political. Women who have spent time in consciousness-raising groups often emphasize that the process requires them to pay close attention to language and to find new ways of talking about things. It is liberating to be able to put into words experiences which have previously seemed nebulous and vague, or else shameful and unmentionable. It is empowering to find other women sharing, understanding, and collectively reinterpreting such experiences. Language here has dispelled its apparent non-existence, not by naming it, but by communicating it. The need to communicate, to bridge the gap between women, is a constant theme of feminist writing, <clears throat> reflected very often in the titles of books or poems, silences, lies, secrets and silence, finding the voice, unlearning, do not speak. Silence is a symbol of oppression, while liberation is speaking out, making contact. The contact is what matters. A woman who lies or who is silent may not lack a language, but she does not communicate. Women struggling to reinterpret the world have noted that language does not in itself guarantee communication and that words are often inadequate. As one woman hailing the publication of Dale Spender's man-made language wrote, sometimes when I am talking to people, I really feel at a loss for words. I have this idea in my head and a feeling I want to express, and I just can't get it out. I have felt like this for years, and I have never been able to understand why. A vast number of the words I use all the time to describe my experience are not really describing it at all. What this woman is describing has been called woman's alienation from language. It is an uneasy feeling that your words are not yours at all. They have been somehow co-opted or taken away and turned against you. The feminist view of language has something in common with the feminist view of sexuality is a powerful resource that the oppressor has appropriated, giving back only the shadow which women need to function in a patriarchal society. From this point of view, it is crucial to reclaim language for women. Again, this kind of practical concern with language, how can women say what they really mean, has an implicit theory behind it. The writings of Dale Spender and other women, notably Mary Daly and Adrian Rich, put that theory explicitly on the agenda for discussion by, by their grassroots activist groups. Consciousness raising and other feminist activities had the additional effect of pointing up certain differences between talk in the safe space. Women were creating from themselves and talk in the wider world dominated by men. Feminists like Robin Morgan and Marge Percy have written, for example, in their dissatisfactions with the aggressive and jargon-heavy style used by the new left. When I was a graduate student, I remember myself feeling a gap, a dissonance between the way conversation was conducted in women's groups and the way I was expected to talk in the academic seminars where I spent my working time, a lot of working time. The seminars started to seem like intellectual duels in which the best man won. And I was training myself explicitly to compete on those terms. I noticed, too, that some women were either unable or unwilling to compete. Often, they were silenced. I wouldn't claim, of course, that this experience was universal or even widely shared. But for me, at least, and I think for others, too, it fed a developing interest in a notion that men and women might have different ways of t talking and that women might be disadvantaged or alienated by the routine imposition of male norms. Again, it seemed that a problem of practice, how do we avoid being silenced, adopt their tactics, or try to change the rules, led to an interest in linguistic theory. Were there really differences, and if so, how do they arise and where 
of what do they mean? And this is where I'll come to the next section, feminisms, postmodernism, signs of things to come. So far I've been talking about pressures to look at language which arose roughly during the 60s and 70s. And although, once again, I must stress that diversions are artif- uh, divisions are artificial, that they tidy up what was is really an untidy picture of an unfolding political and intellectual movement. I want now to say something about the developments of the 80s and the 90s. Mm. Many of these developments were in fact present in some feminist thinking much earlier than 1980, nor have they simply replaced what preceded them. Everything said so far remains relevant to feminist theorizing about language. But in the 70s, the new currents were mostly uh, strongly felt within academic circles, whereas in the 80s and the 90s, I think, it is fair to say that these currents have exerted a pull on feminism more generally. There's a wider population. They have led to a different way of thinking about gender and to a further emphasis on the importance of language and linguistic theory. I'm referring here to the intersection between feminism and a current of thought we can loosely call postmodernist. The term postmodernism is used to refer to many things, a stage of history or capitalism but also the ways of thinking and the forms of art or culture that reflect this new stage. Theorists who use the term suggest that we are now living in a world radically different from anything known before. Although I do not want to embark on a listing of all the things that have been claimed to ca- characterize postmodernism as a historical phenomenon, I will pick out some of those that are mentioned very frequently. One is a telescoping or compression of time and space. Communications technology has made the world much smaller and the places in it much more alike. Smaller alike. Think, for example, of the global proliferation of McDonald's hamburger restaurants. I lived in uh, Zurich, Switzerland for seven years, three years ago, and I was shocked in that time to see a McDonald's built precisely in the same way that the McDonald's are here. So, I thought it was a defeat for that culture. (laughs) At the same time, new styles, fashions, ideas, and so forth are being produced at a furious rate and also endlessly recycled. Styles from different periods and places are often mixed together in a kind of collage. And this characteristic of mass-produced popular culture has deeply influenced serious art, blurring cultural boundaries. Size, blurring, boundaries, (coughs) speed. The speed up is made possible by technology. But the underlying reason for it is the capitalist drive for profit. Styles, images, and ideas are the new commodities of the postmodern world. We are now producing and consuming, consuming items like computer games and music videos rather than, say, steel girders. Even basic commodities like food and clothing are sold nowadays in terms of the lifestyle they connote rather than their mere functional utility. And the ideas of theory and politics have also become commodified to be advertised and sold in the market like cereal and jeans. If it is true that we are living in a postmodern world characterized by a speed up in time, a compression of space and a proliferation of messages and images constantly bombarding us, we might expect this to have effects on the kind of people we are and the kinds of thinking we find relevant to our condition. Philosophers of postmodernism argue that we need new theories for new times. The old theories, for example, Western humanism or classical Marxism, no longer speak to our complex, fragmented reality. A postmodernist worldview distinguishes itself from traditional philosophical assumptions with their roots in the Western Enlightenment of the 18th century. The most important of those traditional assumptions is that by using our innate faculties of reason, human beings can come to know the truth, the truth about the world and themselves. 
If you want to persuade someone that some claim you make is true, you appeal to their reason with the associated standards of logic, evidence, and proof. Postmodernism questions this familiar and comforting idea that there is some truth which we can know. Postmodernist philosophers point out, for example, that claims to truth, however rationally argued, really rest on pure rationality, but depend crucially on the authority of those who make the claim. The Enlightenment world has believed many claims later rejected as biased or ludicrous, that Africans have less evolved than Europeans, for instance, because they were backed by the authority of science. But claims like this always arise within a belief system whose validity is accepted beforehand. In relation to the system, they seem obvious and unchallengeable. Take away or modify this invisible support system and it becomes impossible to see them as justified. Postmodernist treatments of science, which is the Enlightenment's most privileged way of knowing, suggest that no phenomenon can be observed objectively. The description uninfluenced by the standpoint of the observer. Another thing postmodernism questions is the status of the person or subject who has knowledge and reason. We tend to think of ourselves as stable entities with relatively fixed personalities and consistent opinions arrived at by rational means. Postmodernist thinking doubts this, denying that the self is either stable or coherent. Psychoanalysis is an important reference point for this sort of doubt, which becomes all the more intense under uh, contemporary conditions of extreme fragmentation. It was Freud who theorized that all human subjects are motivated by unconscious desires which are not rational, not consistent, and not accessible to the conscious and reasonable processes of self-reflection. Sometimes this becomes a manifest in a problem. For instance, when someone develops the irresistible compulsion to do something repeatedly, like wash her hands or eat everything in the house, and is able to understand why she behaves in this bizarre manner. Most of us, unplagued by this sort of problem, or maybe we are, can more easily ignore the unconscious, irrational components of ourselves. But they are there, nevertheless. Why should this way of thinking have proved attractive to some feminists? They are, in fact, many reasons for feminists to deplore the new developments. For example, the postmodern form of capitalism intensifies the exploitation of women workers, and the commodification of political ideas trivializes feminism itself. You come a long way, baby, as a cigarette once proclaimed. Jane Sachs points out that even postmodernist philosophy, as opposed to the phenomena it theorizes about, isn't exactly attractive, and some feminists find it threatening. Women and other oppressed groups want to experience themselves as rational and coherent subjects. They want to be able to present feminist ideas as reasonable, objective, and true. But the strength of postmodernism is that it offers an explanation for why this has been so difficult and beyond a certain point ineffective. Feminists critique great thinkers for giving us accounts of human experience presented as rational, objective, and true, which makes sense only insofar as they exclude the experience of women and other oppressed groups. If women accepting this criticism of existing accounts now try to provide a competing account from the standpoint of their own experience, they are going to be caught up in a number of problems and paradoxes. First of all, since women lack the power and authority of men, their competing claim to truth will lose. This we know from experience as well as theory. Feminism isn't seen as objective and true, whereas the equally equally, but covertly, gender-specific masculinist account is. This supports the postmodernist claim that truth is relative to power. Secondly, it is a problematic for feminists to present their competing account as universal, like its rival, an account of human experience, only this time without the male bias. But how can it be universal? If the male's theories claim to universality is vitiated by the gender standpoint of the theorist, men, 
The same must be true of any female counterpart. This is why some feminists embrace postmodernism, acknowledging their gendered standpoint and critic uh, criticizing all assertions of neutrality as illusionary wherever they come from. Thirdly, and this has been crucial for recent feminist uh, politics, there is a danger that in constructing the competing account, woman rule replicate men's exclusion of women in different form. Some women, the most privileged, will universalize their own experience as woman's experience. And this will be false for other groups of women. During the 80s and 90s, such excluded groups of women, black and other minority ethnic women in the West, third world, world and non-Western women, working class women, older women, lesbians, women with disabilities, drew increasing attention to the dangers of generalizing about women and to the reality of diversity, difference and conflict within the category woman. This point has been well taken in politics and theory it is common now for us to talk of feminisms rather than feminism, of many standpoints and experiences rather than one. Feminists continue to be interested in the uh, construction of gender, the nature of gender relations, the reasons for women's oppression, and the best strategies for ending it may have stopped looking for any single overall cause, like the division of labor, patterns of childbearing, practices of sexuality or cultural representations. All these things are relevant, and many more as well, since gender interacts with other social divisions, such as those of race, ethnicity, class, age, and so on. In this refusal to construct universalized accounts, feminism as a political movement seems to be drawing closer to postmodernism as an intellectual current. What has any of this to do with language? One connection lies in the idea that postmodern societies are characterized by the incessant production of messages, images, and signs. To understand society, therefore, entails learning how to read its cultural codes, its language. A feminist critique might want to examine how the meaning of gender is constructed and reconstructed in the codes of, say, fashion or advertisements or popular music. That is rather like a continuation of the feminist concern with the images of a woman, but it occurs within a different theoretical framework. For as Jane Flax points out, postmodern philosophy questions not only the status of truth, reason, and identity, but also the status of language. According to Enlightenment thinking, language is a transparent medium which reflects a world existing outside of language. It is a way to bring a prior reality into consciousness. Postmodernism takes a very different view. The feminists of the early uh, second wave made the radical move of asking from whose point of view and according to whose reality this naming of the world has been done. And the answer always came back to the same bends. More radically still, feminists like Dale Spender propose that there is no reality outside its linguistic representation. The language you use affects what you perceive as real. Though it comes by way of a different theoretical route, postmodernism would endorse this general approach to language. Indeed, it would go further, prompted once again by the insights of psychoanalysis. It suggests that language is not only not neutral, it is also not totally in our conscious control. We ourselves are created and structured as social beings by learning a language. And some theorists have put this, language speaks us. For feminists, the interesting implication of this idea is that language may speak men and women, more technically, masculine and feminine subjects, and they may speak men and women differently. One crucial aspect of a person's gender might be their relation to language. Some feminist theorists have suggested that femininity means, in a sense, being outside language or marginal to it. This might explain the alienation of many women from prevailing forms of rational, unified discourse. It might suggest, too, the necessity for women to create new ways of using language. Others argue that our language, like everything else, has become so fragmented 
that we cannot talk in these abstract terms, language, woman, femininity. We need a less global, less utopian feminist account of language. I'd like to turn now to uh, the next topic, which is uh, gender differences in language and its critique. And here I'm going to draw upon something that's homey, much more close to home, and that's our folk language and uh, from uh, folk linguistics and their uh, critiques and writings and information that they have given to us about this. What they have said is that in our society we find beliefs about language that are simply accepted as common sense. These beliefs not only explain to the ordinary language user things she might have observed for herself, they also regulate language behavior. For example, it is widely believed in English-speaking cultures that women are good listeners. But the word are and its implication also has a certain flavor of ought to be. A lot of oral and written advice to women, for example, in the problem pages of women's magazines, urges us to make use of this supposed talent. In this way, a tendency which is real but slight may become exaggerated, or one which is not real may come into being. Sometimes the male-female differences in language are reinforced in ideas of an absolute or all-pervading gender difference. And here I want to take you back to 1712. In that year, Jonathan Swift claimed in his uh, book that he wrote, Proposal for Correcting, Improving, and Ascertaining the English Tongue, that some sounds, hard consonants, are typical of male speech. Others, vowels, of female speech. Since vowels are not better nor worse than consonants, Indeed, Swift explicitly says that language needs both masculine and feminine tendencies. The problem here is that of labeling things, or qualities, hard, soft, consonant, vowel, masculine, feminine. More than two centuries after Swift, feminists have rediscovered with astonishment the work of the Danish grammarian Otto Jesperson, in his book entitled Language, Its Nature, Development, and Origin, containing a chapter called The Woman. This, by the way, is a good example of setting one group up as a norm and treating others as deviant. As many commentators have noted, there is no chapter in Jesperson's book called The Man. Without adducing any real evidence, he refers sometimes to the dialogue given to women, characters in novels or plays by men. Jesperson tells us women speak more softly and politely than men. They have smaller and less varied vocabularies. They use diminutives like teeny weeny. They construct their sentences loosely and they leave them unfinished all the while jumping from topic to topic. These characteristics of women's speech were evidently not chosen at random and are not value-free. Jesperson is caught between his fantasies, soft-spoken, retiring child woman, and his prejudices, loquacious yet bird-brained woman to produce a stereotype that is both old, think of Shakespeare's comment that a low voice is an excellent thing in a woman, and yet contemporary. There are many contemporary today assertiveness training programs that teach women to please speak in a lower voice. You'll have more command and more authority. If you speak in a higher voice, you're going to be seen, not heard, not seen, and you will lose your uh, power and authority. Popular culture gives us plenty of uh, female verbal incontinence. For example, the anti-cap joke, when two wives get together, who has the last word? And a logical woman who keeps, can't keep to the point 
as a character in the soap opera Coronation Street comments, you might as well try to knit fog as follow what's in a woman's mind. Stereotypes, however false, tend to persist for as long as the social differences and inequalities they enforce. So long as women are subordinate to men, their language will continue to be stereotyped as indicating natural subservience, unintelligence, and immaturity. So long as men dominate women in conversation by restricting their talk, our folk linguistic beliefs will include the idea that women talk incessantly. Nor does it matter that the stereotypes are internally contradictory. Even feminists have not always subjected linguistic stereotypes to the scrutiny they require. And here's a book that has come out to alert linguists to the political implications of sex differences. It's a book that came out that was written by Robin Lakoff. So we see that we can also create, as women, our own sexism. So let's listen to this book and some of the problems that we might see in it. Robin Lakoff's work, Language and Women's Place, is remarkable for creating a stereotype of its own, and one not so very different from its overtly chauvinistic precursors. According to Lakoff, there are two styles of speech, neutral speech, and women language. Another example of norm and deviation thinking. Though Lakoff is more self-conscious about it. The latter is characterized by a lack of forcefulness. Women use more tag questions. Approval-seeking constructions like, thou'll be all right, won't it? More uncertain rising intonations. More intensifiers. So, Really? Very. And more qualifiers. Not exactly. Maybe a bit. More exaggerated politeness and less offensive offensive expletives than men. Thank you. (laughs) This is a subservient way of talking in which everything is hedged about and nothing asserted outright. Lakoff is a feminist, and her explanation of women's language is not like Jesperson's, however much the language itself may seem to be. She explains that women are socialized to hedge their meaning in language for fear of giving offense to men, but her account is still an anecdotal one and has not always been borne out by empirical research. Other research, for instance, tested the hypothesis that women use more tag questions than men. In their sample, on the contrary, it was men used more. And still other researchers, like Janet Holmes and Cameron and McAllen and O'Leary, have found women and men use roughly equal numbers of tags. Yet the idea that this is a woman's form persists. It is as though people want to believe Lakoff because her account fits so well with prevailing ideas. We love our stereotypes. Why do stereotypes like this persist, not just in folk language, but also in modern scientific language? In Lakoff's case, it might be a reflection of her training of the Chomskyan tradition, which urges the analyst to examine her own intuitions rather than collecting a corpus of data. But Lakoff's particular academic training cannot be the whole story. Feminists who are not linguists also have a strong folk linguistic beliefs about women's speech, and they are once again reminiscent of beliefs of anti-feminists, though of course the feminists interpret them differently. In my attending feminist seminars, workshops, and group discussions about language, there are several folk linguistic assertions I heard over and over again from the non-linguist woman present. From those assertions, feminist folk linguistic profile of woman's speech, uh, the following features would come up. Number one, disfluency. Women have trouble communicating in a male language and the result is hesitations, false starts, and so on. 
The second thing that would come up would be unfinished sentences. You see, 1712 is still here. The third that would come up would be speech not ordered according to the norms of logic. Or to put this another way, ordered according to woman's differing notion of logic. The fourth feature that would come up is the use of questions, including statements couched as questions. The fifth area that would come up is speaking less than men in mixed groups. And the sixth that was often found is using cooperative and supportive strategies in conversation, whereas men are more competitive. This is how many feminists believe women speak, and there is a tendency to make these attributes the basis of an authentic woman's speech style, which should be positively valued. Feminists claim the right, in language as in other spheres, to do things differently from men without this being seen as indicative of inferiority. They propose to revalue women's distinctive way of talking. As a general political strategy, there is nothing wrong with revaluing women's traditions. Indeed, there is every reason to believe that society in general would benefit from it. But on this particular question of language, I think we should proceed with caution because the feminist folk linguist profile raises a number of problems. The most obvious problem is, do women really talk this way? For it seems pointless to revalue a tradition that exists only in the feminist folk linguist imagination. And a second problem is, supposing women do use the features listed above, what does this actually mean? Does it mean what feminists think it means? Is it a straightforwardly positive thing, or is it, as Lakoff might success, uh, suggest, a disadvantage in many situations? To put matters in more concrete terms, what exactly is the linguistics evidence for such impressionistic labels as logic, cooperativeness? And supposedly we identify particular features we judge as ex exemplifying these things. What is the evidence that those features don't mean something else entirely? For instance, it is not difficult to think of language features that could be defined as disfluencies. We could take a piece of data and uh, quantify the hesitations, false starts, repetitions, pauses, and so on. But linguists have long debated the issue of what disfluency means. Some believe pausing is a hallmark of a careful, or thoughtful speaker planning her next utterance. Those who pause really are thoughtless and unintelligent. For this reason, ironically, Jesperson claimed that men pause more than women. Others believe hesitancy indicates errors in language processing, while yet others claim it is a stylistic device that conveys a message to the hearer that the speaker is uncertain or perhaps reluctant to offend. So if we find a gender difference in disfluency, we are still left with a problem of interpretation. Now we can look at logic and language. This is a particularly broad and difficult notion. One question that immediately arises is whether it refers to the content of speech or to the form, the sequencing of utterances. Another is, what exactly would constitute greater or lesser logic? Which is not to say that women are illogical, rather that our notions of logic may be androcentric. To sum this up, the rules of talk are not like the rules for solving equations or constructing syllogisms. People talking do not only exchange information, and sometimes they exchange no real information at all. Nice day, isn't it? They use talk to construct social relationships. Any discussion of logic must bear this point in mind. So what is the source of the folk linguistic belief that women are less logical or use a different kind of logic than men? We might consider several possibilities. One possibility is that women tend to be less involved than men in formal public events when the appropriate or customary style is especially explicit, 
where logical connections are made on the surface and where information and argument are more important than interpersonal solidarity. A second possibility is that women talking to other women can leave many things more implicit because they assume a great deal of shared knowledge and cooperation. This reflects women's socialization to be attentive to and concerned about what others think and feel. It might be observed, too, that men and women do not have the same degree of knowledge about one another. Perhaps, then, men find women's conversation difficult to follow, and since they are the powerful group, they can deal with their incompre incomprehension by defining women's behavior as deviant and wrong. Illogical is just their word for that. Uh, Churis Camera suggests that women are more attuned to the dynamics of male conversation than vice versa, since subordinates are dependent for survival on a group good grasp of their subordinates' behavior. She's done a lot of work in with male-female workers, and it didn't depend on what the status of the woman was. She could have been the manager, uh, and uh, the male could have been uh, one of the workers. Still, there was a... Um, difference in the way the dynamics of the conversation went. There was a subordination dynamics. A third possibility that should not be overlooked is that the stereotype is just a stereotype and has no real correlate in women's behavior. Finally then, let us consider the stereotype of women as cooperative and men as competitive. This is so ingrained, this is so influential and this is so seductive. Let us ask where the stereotype of competitive men and cooperative women comes from. Certainly it is reinforced in expert uh, linguistic studies, both feminist and non-feminist. Classic ethnographic studies of all male interaction have tended to focus on street gangs and ritual verbal performances, whereas studies of all female interaction are more likely to focus on small intimate groups. I've read research studies and research studies over and over about this and it's amazing how skewed the examples are and uh, the references of cooperation to a competition that is made. As well as producing data on the two sexes that is not directly comparable this is surely simplistic, suggesting as it does that men don't have intimate conversations and women don't have large-scale confrontations. Indeed, it leads me to suspect that subconscious folk linguist beliefs have influenced social linguistics choice of settings for data collection, all happening in the unconscious. What of the specifically feminist folk linguist belief in women's cooperative speech? Are feminists just repeating old stereotypes? Are they romanticizing women's fabled lack of aggression and equally fabled listening skills? Perhaps so, but I think there is one other factor that should be taken into account. Contemporary feminism has deliberately institutionalized a very cooperative speech style. When you attend a feminist group or meeting, this is what I have experienced. You soon learn that interruption, talking too much, raising your voice, vehemently disagreeing with others, expressing hostility, and so forth are not acceptable behavior. On the other hand, it is desirable that you express solidarity, give way to other speakers, and tolerate long silences if they occur. There are good political reasons behind this style. It was painstakingly worked out as a way of preventing some women, usually those whose privileged access to higher education had given them confidence in public speaking, from dominating and silencing others. Many women in early second wave feminist groups had belonged previously to leftist, leftist organizations where the prevailing style of discussion was hierarchical, forceful, and oratorical. They have found this off-putting and were determined not to repeat it. 
That the style they replaced it with is specifically a feminist style is suggested by the comments made to me uh, when I interviewed feminist women about how they thought feminists talk. Women recalled their early experiences in feminist groups, saying, I had a lot of trouble not interrupting, interrupting, interrupting. I felt like everyone was thinking I couldn't keep my mouth shut. Or it struck me the minute we started all the silence and letting people finish. On the other hand, I found some feminists justify this style as something that suits women better or gets away from male ways of speaking. The often political process by which feminists arrived at their anti-elitist linguistic norms has already been erased and the norms themselves have been naturalized. Could this be an example of folk linguistics regulating real linguistic behavior? It seems to me that the feminist study of gender differences in language must also pay attention to the empirical facts, whatever they may turn out to be. How do men and women of different ages, classes, races, cultures use language in different contexts, situations, and so on? Can any generalizations be made about this? And what are the implications? This seems to require a more holistic approach, which sometimes is called in research discourse analysis. Discourse analysis deals with a more general speech style in which the different choices speakers make can be described in functional as well as formal terms. Interest in male and female gender differences at this level of language was simulated by Lacoste's language and woman's place. While this was not a work of empirical investigation, it was informative of stereotypical behaviors. To continue with Lacoste, she had described woman's language as a variety girls learn in the course of early childhood socialization. They are encouraged to use it, rewarded for using it and disapproved of as unfeminine if they fail to use it. This speech style urged on little girls is, however, a way of preparing them for their subordinate place in adult society. Talk couched in women's language lacks authority, thus unfitting those who use the language for any position in which they might exercise authority. Adult women will have the unappealing choice between rejecting women's language and so becoming less than a woman or embracing it and thus acquiescing in their inferiority, becoming less than a person. Lackhorst's claim is that women are denied access to powerful styles of speech, those that confer authority and credibility on a speaker. This is one version of the dominance current and in linguistic theory, language theory, and its implication for gender, we come to another area of looking at the data, and a recent area is looking at whether it has to do with dominance, power, or difference, being other. Another, so you'll hear dominance and difference, dominance and difference. So the debates that are going on now are becoming a little more uh, trying to get to be a little more balanced, but not yet discriminative enough. Another version put things differently, arguing that men's way of speaking is not intrinsically more credible, authoritative. What happens is simply that men can use their socially dominant positions to claim linguistic privileges. The two versions need to be distinguished because their practical implications are different. The first version suggests that women can gain authority by using men's ling linguistic strategies, while the second is more skeptical about this. Linguistic strategies are, after all, chosen within particular social contexts and relations. Either way, however, it remains the case that, in the trenchant phrase of Sally McConnell uh, Genet, conversation is not an equal opportunity activity. Inequality of conversational opportunity has been uncovered in a number of areas. For instance, researchers have documented sex differences in floor apportionment. 
That is how speaking turns are allotted and to whom. In a famous study Zimmerman by Zimmerman and West, they found that whereas same-sex dyads, pairs, share the floor equally and inter interrupt each other rarely, in mixed-sex pairs there is a marked asymmetry, men interpret women. West had gone on to show that this pattern applies even to dyads where the woman has more status. Her example is uh, talk between women doctors and male patients. Now Nikolai Woods found that in a business setting gender was a better predictor than status of who would interpret, interrupt whom. Women were interrupted less as bosses than as subordinates sometimes. But overall, they were still interrupted more than men. Men are also able to gain the lion's share of the floor in cross-sex talk because women provide them with hearer support. We are good listeners. And if we aren't, we better get with it. And they do this in the form of minimal responses like, hmm, yeah, oh yes, yes, mm-hmm. And questions. When you ask someone a question, you cede the floor to them. Men do not reciprocate this support. This matter of women's support strategies is taken up in a number of papers by Pamela Fishman, whereas some researchers had retreated, uh, treated women's supportiveness as a straightforward sign of their socialization into powerlessness and deference or as signs of what Lakoff would term insecurity or approval seeking, Fisherman considers supportiveness as creative and skillful strategy that women use in order to have some kind of control in conversation with men. If women ask questions and give cues like, do you know what? Men are obliged to engage in talk. As Fisherman notes, such strategies are only necessary because men in fact have the upper hand. Their only recalcitrant behavior forces women to do the interactional work if they wish to interact at all. The difference current accepts these findings but reinterprets them. Researchers in this current are interested in Lakoff's suggestion that there is a woman's language, but they criticize her negative evaluation of it. They propose that it is not, in fact, inherently dysfunctional and should be valued as something positive and authentic, different, not inferior. And Jennifer Coates point out that women use support features like minimal responses, not only with men, but among themselves in all women conversations where gender hierarchy is not a factor. Here it is hardly interactional since it is shared. Its purpose is to promote the kind of intimacy women enjoy and men often lack. Some of the features Lakoff dis uh, discusses as markers of powerlessness or insecurity are reinterpreted in the difference current as variants of the support structure. Janet Holmes, for instance, argues that some tag questions are really support structures. Lakoff had labeled as illeg illegitimate those tags, allegedly very common in women's speech that call for confirmation of facts or opinions from which the speaker is the only real authority. Why, for instance, say that's a good book, isn't it, rather than just that's a good book? If you have any confidence in your own judgment, Holmes replies, that such a tag functions not to undermine the speaker, but to engage the hearer, reassuring her that the speaker cares about her opinions too. Like certain other women's language features, such as qualifiers, intensifiers, hesitations, and so on, tags are hedging structures which qualify the force of an assertion and so as not to intimidate, offend, or exclude other points of view. This could be interpreted as weak and lacking authority. It could equally be interpreted as polite and considerate. 
Holmes is equivocally on the question of whether women are coerced by social expectations and the behavior of men into using support structures, or whether these represent positive choices. Other researchers like Deborah Jones and Jennifer Coates are less uh, in favor viewing women's cooperative speech as arising from distinctive and valuable female subcultures. For someone of this persuasion who does not want to attribute everything to the workings of power, the problem obviously arises of why the sexes should have distinctive linguistic subcultures at all. podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org. Thank you to our 2019 supporter-level donors, Bill Alexi, Usha and Ashok Beatty, Circle Center Yoga, Arlo and Rena Kampan, Eric Cooper and Judith Cooper, Lorna Crowell, D. Scott Dayton, George J. Didier, The Cole Family Foundation, Ramakrishnan and Full Bloom Lotus, Suzanne G. Rosenthal, Deborah Stutzman, Deborah Tobin, Alexander Wayne and Lynn Kopp, and Gerald Weiner. If you would like to support this podcast, just go to youngchicago.org slash give.